Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, football editor at Chronicle Live. And we've hit 1961. The Newcastle United roller coaster really is now in full swing for the second half of the 20th century. We've crossed over the halfway point of our 30-plus episode walk through the history of the club. Last week's episode heard us discuss Newcastle's most recent FA Cup final win. But we also covered their second ever relegation to the second tier. Today, for episode 17, we're covering 1961-67. The return of Joe Harvey, a promotion and the first taste of European football. Joining me as ever to describe this period and the players and managers involved is uh, the club's official historian, Paul Joannou. And today we're honoured to welcome a very special guest. Michael Chaplin is an acclaimed theatre, radio and television writer, creator of TV dramas such as Monarch of the Glen. He's adapted numerous novels for the screen and written hundreds of theatre plays, many of which have run locally in the northeast at venues like Newcastle's Live Theatre and the Customs House in South Shields. Michael is a huge champion of arts and culture in the region and has just released a brand new work of non-fiction that covers his lifelong obsession with Newcastle United. Michael, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I'd love to start the episode by hearing a little bit more about your background as a Geordie, as a a renowned writer and as a long-suffering Newcastle United supporter. Yes, Uh, well, thanks, Matt. And hello again, Paul. Uh, it's really great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, well, my family roots uh, were in County Durham, and I come from a long line of miners, uh, which stopped with my dad, who ultimately became a, a writer before me, short story writer and novelist. And, and what happened was that in 1957, we moved to Newcastle from London, where my dad had been working. And we'd, none of us knew Newcastle. My dad knew it a bit. He was really keen to come back to the Northeast because he wanted to write more novels, but set in the Northeast. And he found that difficult to do living in London. So we came back. And how I became a Newcastle supporter, simply told, I I didn't know anything about football. Um, This was when I was about six years old and I was playing out in the street one day with my new friend, Charlie. And suddenly out of nowhere, there was this tremendous noise, A, a large number of people cheering and shouting. I had no idea what it was. And I turned to Charlie, who did, and said, what was that? And and Charlie said, he smiled. And uh, he said, oh, Newcastle must have scored a goal. And and that sort of got into my system, really. And I, I was kind of completely fascinated by the sound that that made. You know, the city was, there was not much traffic in those days. And, and so it traveled in the air. Um, and it made me feel like I wanted to be there. To experience that, to find out more about it. Um, and it was at that point, really, that I really got into football. And it was sustained for a number of years by the journal, the Chronicle, and the Football Pink, especially the Football Pink. You know, I was one of many people who rushed to the local newsagents waiting for the delivery. Um, and uh, But I didn't actually go to the, f- the first game until May the 1st, 1963, um, because nobody in the family would take me. And, and then my sister had the uh, wisdom to marry a man called David Parry, my brother-in-law, who was a sports fanatic. And uh, one weekend he said to me, do you fancy going to St. James's Park this week? And I, I, my, my jaw dro- dropped, you know, to the to the floor. I couldn't believe that this had happened. So we went that night. <clears throat> and uh, it was at the end of that long winter, uh, you know, the big freeze. So games were still being played. And we went on the popular side. <clears throat> and I, I was just beside myself with excitement. Uh, and after 18 minutes, Newcastle were two down. 
so that was my first introduction to to the thing but actually what happened was that we we came back and and we won that game uh, against Stoke five goals to two so that that was just such a brilliant start uh, and and we did it in real style uh, orchestrated by a lovely player called Alan Suddick whose story embraces the first chapter of the book um because yeah. uh, there are 11 11 chapters in the book there are 11 games between 1963 and 2019 so that's how it it breaks down so yeah brilliant well it's great to have you on uh at, right at the start of your Newcastle <laughs> career as we, yes. as we, we, we yeah. hit the 60s yes um and I mentioned your, your body of work, which is which is fantastic. And you've actually written a couple of plays about Newcastle United as well, yeah. haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, collaborating with a man called Paul Giannou, um <laughs> who who helped me on both occasions. Uh, yeah, the first was in uh, I was commissioned by theater, the Theatre Royal and Live Theatre to do a play, really about the history of the club, and and I did it by um, entwining that history around the life of a family. Um, granddad had been a player for the team back in the 30s his son had always been a fan the the children were fanatics and and using their family's story their family life recreated different periods of of the club um <clears throat> uh, th- this uh, went on <laughs> this went on in the theater in, in the summer of 1996 in other words just after uh, we didn't win the title but despite that, it was um, it was for me it was a completely brilliant experience because I got to meet all sorts of wonderful players and characters from the past, uh, including uh, an FA Cup winner called Charlie Crow, and from a slightly earlier gen- generation, Albert Stubbins, wow. um, who has an incredible story. And and there is actually. Um, uh, I managed to keep the notes of my interview with Albert, um, and he just he just had the, a remarkable career, as Paul will know, um, and and also he is kind of famous for being one of the many tiny faces on the front of the Sergeant Pepper album yes. by the Beatles. Yes. We've discussed um, that. We've discussed this actually on the podcast, but it's, oh, fun, right. yeah, it's fantastic. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was a bit bemused by all of that. He was slightly embarrassed. <laughs> And said, "Oh, I really don't know what I'm doing up up with Albert Einstein and Marilyn Monroe." <laughs> um, but um, but of course, he was Paul McCartney's favourite player when when Paul was a young mm. lad. So yeah, yeah. So we've got two. You, you, Paul has also met and interviewed Albert, and you've you've met and interviewed Albert. I've been thinking about him over the over the last couple of weeks doing the podcast and um, reading up about him, and, and, and when he was on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's. Paul McCartney supposedly sent him a copy signed and, and said, you know, <laughs> he didn't keep it. Did did, I was going to ask, I did. did he, I, I, I was going to ask either of you, did you discuss where that is and if it, if it exists still? I don't Paul. Yeah, well, I've never seen it. Another, he didn't, he didn't show it to me. So I doubt it's, uh, I doubt he kept it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, well, just, just for clarity, this, the, the, the inscription apparently was, you know, well done, Albert. Um, congratulations! Long, long may you, Bob and Weave, signed Paul McCartney and the rest of the Beatles. So, if that does exist, I hope somebody's got it. Um, wow, got it safely stowed away yeah. somewhere. But yeah, another yeah. mystery, another Newcastle United mystery that, that remains unsolved. Yeah, at the end of my interview, I did, I did raise this obviously because I was a big Beatles fan, and uh, I went and bought my copy of Sergeant Pepper's in Windows on the first day it was out. So I, d- I did say to Albert. 
uh, would you mind if I came back and got you to sign my copy of Sergeant Pepper? And of course he said, yeah, he was very courteous. Uh, but um, but I never did. Um, you know, <laughs> things things happen, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. but anyway, I have very fond memories of, of him and his, his gentleness. He's had huge hands and huge feet. It's one of the things I remember. And he, and, he, <laughs> yeah. and he, when we were interviewing him, he perched on the end of the settee, um, on the edge of the settee, as if he was going to suddenly spring up and put in a near post header or something. <laughs> anyway, he was a great, a great guy. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Okay, right. We'll 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 mention we'll discuss the book a little bit later in the episode. But Paul, let, let's get into nineteen sixty one. Then Newcastle have inexplicably found themselves back in Division Two after thirteen mostly enjoyable years back in the top flight. Yeah, that's that's right. For season 1961-62, um, they were back in Division 2, and it was a big shock to the system. Uh, Newcastle went from 1950s glamour club to second tier uh, and, and rather went into obscurity for two or three seasons. Uh, surprisingly somewhat, uh, Charlie Mitten, the manager, was still in charge as that season began, but he soon departed. That was no surprise. And a stopgap boss arrived uh, from within. That was the long-serving trainer, Norman Smith, who had such a, a close relationship with uh, Stan Seymour. Yeah, and in modern-day English football, we talk about the importance of bouncing straight back when a club falls out of the top flight. And we, As we covered earlier in the series, it took Newcastle over a decade to return to Division 1 when they were first relegated in 1934. How did they react when history repeated itself almost 30 years later? Well, they did need to get back quickly and... Uh... I suppose when you look back, uh, they did uh, return uh, fairly swiftly, but but for three seasons they struggled. Campaigns which saw all three northeastern clubs uh, together: Newcastle, Sunderland, and Middlesbrough. The Magpies finished in eleventh place in 1961-62, and the squad began to change. Gone were the fifties stars, and in came new men. Uh, two big signings: Welsh international centre forward Ken Leek came for a big fee. Uh, but he wasn't a, a real success and moved on very quickly. Incidentally, he's the grandfather of, of current goalkeeper Carl Darlow. And then a new record club fee was paid of £45,000 for another centre-forward uh, in the flying speedster Barry Thomas, who scored the bags, bags of goals at the time uh, and had been called up to the England uh, squad for training. And there was a, a significant appointment made around this time that would alter the course of Newcastle United history? Well, United needed some inspiration. They were, they were struggling and a new start was needed. Uh, and in the summer of 1962, uh, Norman Smith stepped aside and in came Joe Harvey as boss, uh, former FA Cup winning skipper, of course. He started to rebuild the club and it took him a couple of seasons to turn fortunes around, um, but it was well worth the wait in the end. And there was lots of new faces. Uh, Harvey completely remodelled the playing staff, you know, many new players arrived. Dave Hilly, Jim Eiley, Ron Nagari, Willie Penman, Ollie Burton, a goalkeeper, Gordon Marshall, uh, Trevor Hockey, Colin Taylor, Bobby Cummings, and perhaps the most important of them all, you know, former England midfielder came, uh, he came from Sunderland, Stan Anderson, and he was appointed captain. John McGrath, who was signed just before relegation, became a cornerstone at centre-half, uh, alongside Anderson, uh, while Harvey also made sure youngsters were given their chance from a batch of talented kids in the junior setup. You know, David Craig and Frank Clark, 
got into the side, so did Bob Monker and Pop, Pop Robson. Uh, and the pick of the bunch, Aaron Suddick, a ball-playing inside forward who could become a match winner. Yes, now you've touched on our guest, Michael Chaplin's first ever hero there, Alan Suddick. Before I ask you, Michael, about Mr Suddick, Paul, can you give us the official background on Alan, please? Uh, well, he was he, a 17-year-old when he made a de- his debut. He, he joined the club you know, from Chesterley Street uh, Schools in June 1960. Um, and he made his uh, first appearance, 61-62, uh, and he had a quick and big impression in the side. And very rapidly, he was in the England of the 21 uh, lineup. A schema come forward with ball skills and talent to slip a ball through, uh, and he could always score goals. He developed a huge crowd following during those early to mid-1960s. He was an entertainer. He could be hot and cold up the field like many of his breed, uh, but he was always uh, potentially the match winner. Uh, he scored you know, 43 goals for Newcastle in 152 appearances, and that's a pretty good record mm. uh, at a time when Newcastle weren't you know, a, a, a fluent side going forward. Uh, and eventually, when he did go, it was a huge disappointment to the crowd. He was sold in December 1966 to raise funds. Newcastle got a, a record incoming of £63,000 from when he went to Blackpool. Uh, but that money, in effect, saved the club from relegation as, as though that, that money was so uh, spent on three players that came in and, and made the difference to United staying up. Uh, he went on to become a great favourite over 10 years at Blackpool alongside very many talented uh, footballers in the Tangerines lineup, players like Mickey Burns and Tony Green, who both ended up at Newcastle. So he was uh, everybody's favourite at the time, and uh, just like Michael, uh, you know, was taken to him as well. Yeah, and Michael, we mentioned your new book, Newcastle United Stole My Heart. John Gibson reviewed the book on Chronicle Live's website, in, in which he interviewed you. I'll put a link to that review in the description, so listeners can read it if they haven't already. And in John John's review, you mentioned to him that a chance encounter with a close relation of Alan Suddock's actually kind of formed the basis of inspiration for your book, didn't it? Yes. I mean, um, the it was about 10 years ago that my wife and I were staying in a, a farmhouse B&B in Northumberland, and um, we were we were given dinner in this place, all seated, t- seated together around a table, and I got talking to my neighbour, young woman, about football. Uh, surprisingly, this often happens with me. And, uh, and, and I asked her where she was from, and she said, "Well, actually, uh, I'm from Blackpool. Although the family's roots were were in were on Tyneside, and actually, my father used to play professional football." And I said to her, um, "Well, it wasn't Alan Suddick, was it?" And and uh, her eyes just filled with tears. So she was indeed Keeley, who was the, was the the daughter of Alan, and and that was about ten years ago. But when I was kind of thinking about the structure of the book, I mentioned that. Um, I had this idea of uh, of telling the story through just 11 games over this vast period of time uh, and really looking in detail at the match and who who the players were, the, the nature of the match, and, and in every case, the kind of star for me of that game. And there was no question in this 4-2 win over Stoke City that it was him. And, and, and I, I was kind of bewitched by him, really. He had this mysterious vision thing you know, of seeing, being able to conjure in his mind what would happen if he directed a ball in such a direction. 
and he always seemed to have time. He, he, he was quite speedy, but he, he, he wasn't a speed merchant, if you like, but, but he always seemed to have like, like a, a number of midfield players of this type. Um, he, he just had that vision thing. And uh, anyway, so I was thinking about the first chapter and the first game, which, which literally was the first game I ever attended at St. James's Park. I kind of thought, well, it's got to be the very first game I saw, in particular because it was such a brilliant result, result and such an exciting game. So there was no question that it would have to be Alan Suddick. And of course, I remembered having a conversation with Keeley all those years before. And, and I found her on Twitter and I sent her a message and said, you know, I'm writing this book. Do you think it might be possible for me to come and talk to the family? And, and I, I was welcomed in. You know, they gave me such a warm welcome. And, and Keely and especially her, her mam, Arlene, who uh, were, were completely brilliant. And she, she is a wonderful storyteller. And she has a fantastic memory. So, um, and she first uh, met Alan at the Majestic Ballroom in Westgate Road. Mm. And um, she was 17 and he was a little bit older. And, and, and that was it. She was a secretary at Bainbridge's, the, you know, the John Lewis store. Um, and he was an up-and-coming young footballer. And, and that was it. They, they, they became friends. They became boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, and she told me the whole story of his Newcastle career and covering other things. And she told me about, about the sale. Um, Alan obviously didn't want to go. There'd been various clubs interested in him when he was uh, a teenager, but there was only ever Newcastle for him. Uh, and but he was summoned by Lord Westwood to the boardroom for a chat, and uh, came under pressure to agree to the transfer. He resisted and said, "I don't want to go anywhere else. There's only Newcastle for me." But in the end, uh, I mean, Arlene used the word "bullied" uh, by uh, Lord Westwood, and eventually he gave in uh, and he went. And uh, as Paul said, he had a fantastic career at Blackpool, but the, f the first season was pretty disastrous. He, he didn't really settle. And it, actually, it was Blackpool who got relegated rather than Newcastle. As Paul said, the, the transfers, the three lads who were brought in, did make a difference to the team, sh shoring up the defence, I would think, mostly, while Alan you know, went the other way, as it were. But he, mm. he, he was a magical player, just one of those special players. Mm-hmm. And that first game that you attended, it was the, the end of the 62-63 season? Yes, that's um, right. Yeah, And uh, so Newcastle were attempting to regain promotion. Um, mm. Paul, do you want to talk us through these attempts at promotion um, in 62-63 and 63-64? Yeah, well, certainly the, the first of those two seasons, 62-3 and 63-4, uh, Newcastle showed, certainly showed signs of improvement with Joe Harvey at the helm. Still, United finished way off the top places, and, and indeed they saw Sunderland gain promotion uh, in 63-64. Mm. And uh, it, it, you know, Newcastle went through a difficult time in the FA Cup. Uh, there was an embarrassing FA Cup exit from three times FA Cup holders in the 50s to being knocked out uh, by non-league Bedford Town at St James's mm. Park. Oh um, United lost 2-1, and that, that was... You know, the real low point in the in the uh, early 60s. Um, yeah, all was forgiven the following season in 1964-65 as, as Joe Harvey's uh, side clicked. He, he selected a settled lineup. Uh, it was a solid team. They finished as Div Division Two champions and, and were promoted. 
Uh, a formidable half-back line was the, the key to that success. Uh, Stan Anderson, John McGrath and Jim Eilley, uh, you know, were across the midfield. Um, and youngsters David Craig and Frank Clark at full-back uh, emerged. Uh, while up front, Ron McGarry wore the number nine shirt and he was uh, a rather rumbustious centre-forward. Big, tough and he... he, he welcomed all comers on the field and he scored 16 goals so he was he was a success a success in that uh, uh, season and he was supported by the likes of Dave Hilly who had the touch of a, a Scottish schema uh, in his boots and uh, he could score goals as well mm. this the Scottish theme of the team still pre- prevalent as it was uh, in the early part of the 20th century how was promotion sealed then Paul well, the winning game was uh, on a, a special Good Friday at, at Gallagher. United faced Bolton Wanderers, who were near the top as well, uh, and they fielded a hugely or highly rated number nine in Welshman Wyn Davies. Uh, he was a danger man, uh, but United never allowed Davies a sniff at the ball on that day and won 2-0 in front of a crowd just short of 60,000. And I was there as a young lad sitting on the cinder track uh, at the Leaser's end uh, because the the, the crowd were, were so packed, uh, the youngsters were just pushed onto the grass verge surrounding the field. And I can vividly recall uh, at the final whistle, uh, you know, thousands and thousands just ran onto the field uh, and I was there running on the field trying uh, to eventually get hold of one of the shirts which uh, the players <laughs> threw from the director's <laughs> box into the crowd. Yeah. Um, I never got one and I never even got a piece of one. Uh, oh. So there'll be bits of... Those shirts dotted around Tyneside, I'm sure, are still maybe framed up on the wall. <laughs> Amazing. Michael, do you have any memories from this promotion season? Were you regularly going now? Uh, yeah. You rubbing shirts? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I went as a regular. I was allowed by my uh, parents to go with uh, various pals. We would, we would go on the popular side. Uh, and uh, I, I wasn't actually at the Bolton game. This is a complete disaster. It, it's a thing in all fans' lives that there are some games that you missed that you rather wished you hadn't. Mm-hmm. You know, you had a job interview or had to go to a wedding or a funeral or something like that. In the case of the Bolton game, I was uh, there was a school trip that I signed up to before Christmas, or my parents did, to go to Switzerland. Uh, and right. then, of course, just be you know, in in advance of it, it all dawned on us. All my pals, you know, when Newcastle fanatics. It dawned on us that we were going to miss this key match against Bolton. <laughs> uh, and so we went there. And uh, on, on the day of the match, it was just unbearable. Um, you know, all those years ago, there was obviously there was no internet and, and there was no means of really finding out what had happened. And I think it all dawned on us that eventually we would find out several days later when English papers arrived in the middle of Switzerland. So somebody had the bright idea of asking our physics teacher, uh, Tony Westwell, um, we said to him after breakfast on the morning after, um, if we, we'd had a whip round and, and we'd got, gathered together enough money for him to ring back somebody in Newcastle. And he agreed, bless him, which was really good. So we're all standing around him in the lobby of the hotel and, and he eventually gets put through. I don't know who it was. But then they had this very stilted conversation about, oh, you know, it's really nice here and blah, blah. And everybody's saying, get on with it. Um, and, uh, and finally, he, he said, uh, well, I'm just ringing to find out what happened last night. And this person obviously said, what? 
and he said the match at St James's Park and uh, he, he showed no emotion on his face at all it was not evident whether we'd won or lost by his expression and he put the phone down and he looked at us with a sort of sad expression on his face and we're all go everybody's going oh no we're lost <laughs> and he said we won <laughs> Some complete pandemonium uh it was just remarkable so that Amazing. kind of get you know, was a bit of recompense for the fact that we were we weren't there, despite the fact mm -hmm. we'd been at virtually every other league game. But yeah, great excitement about getting into the first division again. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So, Paul, it's it's now the mid '60s, Newcastle are back in the top flight, but um, the football landscape was changing somewhat at this time of, um, of the mid '60s. Yeah, Newcastle returned to the top level, um, but they really struggled in 1965, six and '66, seven. And as you say, football entered a sort of new modern era um, for the time. It, it was a much modernised game. The kit changed, the boots, the balls and the tactics uh, followed on from uh, England's you know, fantastic World Cup victory in 1966. But United toiled for goals and they tried to sign a number of top-rated centre-forwards and there was a whole line of them, including Bolton's Win Davies. Uh, but they failed on each occasion, yet Joe Harvey was persistent. He, he tried again for Davies and got his man for a record club fee of £80,000, which was big, big bunny uh, back in December 1966. He immediately became a new Geordie uh, icon uh, to a generation of youngsters, uh, including myself. My, he was my first Newcastle uh, hero in, in uh you know, I long remember those days with Big Win in the number nine shirt. Yeah, absolutely. A cornerstone player, I think, in, in, over the course of the 140-year history of, of Newcastle United. We have to hear about him, Paul, and tell us about the mighty win. Uh, well, uh, I suppose as the Terrace song went, uh, you've not seen nothing like the mighty win. <laughs> um, because you know, he was he was a cult hero on Tyneside. Um he had a presence. Uh, maybe he wasn't the most prolific uh, of goal scorers, and he certainly wasn't. Uh, he wasn't brilliant on the ball either, but he was the ideal fit for Newcastle United at the time. Uh, he led the line at centre-forward with a whole-hearted uh, attitude. He was lean and tall and could uh, famously, of course, leap for the ball uh, uh, from crosses um, and had a, a magnificent you know, aerial uh, presence in the box. Wynn created so many openings for others around him, that was his main strength, uh, with knockdowns and, and little touches in, inside the penalty area, uh, and defenders panicked uh, when Newcastle put the pressure on, and, and his partners, especially Pop Robson, flourished around Wynn Davies. You know, Robson went on to score many a goal before moving on. Uh, he was a Welsh international, had played for Wrexham and Bolton before making that move to Tyneside. Uh, and he was crucial to Newcastle's uh, first getting into Europe and then actually uh, you know, playing through those three seasons which were to come in European uh, tournaments. And, and the continental defenders just couldn't handle his uh, tactical centre-forward play at all. After three seasons uh, in Europe, uh, you know, obviously we'll talk about winning the the Fairs Cup uh, in the next episode. You know, Davies eventually moved on. Joe Harvey decided to try a different approach, uh, bringing in yet another centre-forward 
in, in the shape of Malcolm McDonald and, and Big Win moved on uh, uh, after 216 games and 53 goals. And he went on to play for the likes of Manchester United and Manchester City. So uh, he has uh, a, a great uh, record of clubs on his playing list. And you know, everyone who saw Wynn Davies play in the black and white shirt uh, will remember him. Yeah, Michael, you presumably saw a lot of him during uh, this oh, period. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he was amazing in the air. He, 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 uh, Paul, of course, is quite correct. He, he, he wasn't. He wasn't brilliant with his feet, but then he didn't need to be because he, he football, of course, was different then. It, it, it was more about physical possession and presence. Um, but he was magnificent with his head. Uh, I think another thing that uh, marked him out and made him a favourite was he, he he had red hair. He had this sort of carrot top head, which meant that you could always spot him. And uh, he kind of commanded attention physically in that way, his height and, and the fact that he had this ginger hair. And um, uh, and he and he drew a lot of free kicks, Paul. I think didn't he? Yeah. Uh, because okay. he was he was being fouled all the time because defenses just couldn't handle him. But he, he he sometimes had a deft touch, and he certainly had a deft touch in providing goals, as as Paul has said, to those around him. Yeah, the mighty the mighty win indeed, or win the leap. I think was another uh, uh, yeah. nickname that he had, and it, it was a classic combination with him and Pop Robson. You know. The big man and the little man, presence and and speed, and turn, uh, and and they were they were exciting to watch on their day. The, the pair of them together were just unplayable almost. So yeah, fond memories. I think he was a baker, was he not, Paul? He originally trained uh, as a baker in 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 sort of life outside football. I think I think that's right. Um, yeah. um, I always remember also uh, you all often wore distinctive white football boots. Now, that was quite mm, yeah. a novel uh, idea at the time when, when Kit was changing and, and mm. Wynn got a pair of these white football boots and he stood out as well on the field with these white boots. And uh, while he wasn't the greatest on the ball, I do remember in one of his last games for Newcastle, it was, a, I'm sure, a Wednesday night against West Bromwich Albion, he was actually picked on the wing for Newcastle United. John Tudor, I think, played centre forward, and Harvey picked him on the wing after being uh, out of the lineup. And actually, he played wonderfully well with the ball oh. at his feet, and oh. that surprised everybody um, because he, he wasn't noted for that. But he did start as an inside forward, and it is, he must have been pretty good with the ball at his feet as well uh, over his career. Mm. And we're talking about him in such glowing terms. We can assume that his arrival had a um, the desired effect on Newcastle's fortunes. Oh, it certainly did. Uh, Newcastle improved dramatically uh, after a, a few weeks. In season 1967-68, uh, the following season, uh, they finished 10th. Uh, and Davies you know, was, the, was the big difference. Uh, at first, it was with Albert Bennett, another striker, um, and he... Uh, scored plenty of goals until he was injured, and then Pop Robson took over, and uh, that's when it really all clicked. Goals started to flow, and at the back, Bob Monker uh, began to be a commanding centre-back and captain, uh, and the two new Scottish arrivals came into St James's Park, uh, both international wingers in Jim Scott and Jackie Sinclair, who cost uh, nearly as much as Davies, uh, £70,000. Um, amazingly, looking back now, Newcastle actually qualified for European competition uh, for the first time uh, with that mid-table finish. Um, 
and and that was a rather uh, a huge surprise when we look at it now because uh, uh, back then the Intercity Fairs Cup, which was the the sort of third European tournament, uh, now the equivalent of the Europa League, um, only allowed one club from one city round Europe. So um, if if for instance there'd been two or three clubs from London qualify. Uh, being above Newcastle, they couldn't uh, join in to the Intercity Spurs Cup. So um, mm -hmm. even though we allowed, we, we finished tenth. Uh, Newcastle qualified, and and that was um, a real surprise uh, and and rather lucky. But Newcastle were in, mm -hmm. um, and uh, at the same time that season, we had a little experience of what European football might be like in the, in the following season because we played Glasgow Celtic uh, home and away that season um, and they were actually European Cup winners uh, and we managed to beat them at uh, Parkhead and at St James's Park in two memorable friendlies with with uh, big crowds yeah I, I, I I'm just reminded uh, we, you you mentioned Albert Bennett who, who I always liked to watch um, um, uh, until injuries kind of got in the way. He, he became known as Ankles uh, because he had a persistent injury in his ankles. Uh, um, but I, I, I read about him and um, apparently he was very gifted in his, his repartee and, uh, you know, he had a good wit. And he, he once played in a game against Liverpool um, and the man who was marking him was, uh, was Emlyn Hughes. And he observed Emlyn Hughes driving forward with with a ball in a rather sort of manic way in midfield, and uh, it came to nothing. And uh, Emlyn Hughes came back, and Albert Bennett apparently said to him, uh, "Calm down, Crazy Horse." Um, and from from that day, Crazy Horse became uh, Emlyn Hughes' nickname. Uh, <laughs> he was a bit of a joker, and in fact, I also discovered that um, when he gave up football, he um, he ran a joke shop on Lo Lowestoft Pier. Um, which yeah. is not the kind of thing that um, <laughs> retired footballers tend to do nowadays, but it seemed to fit uh, Al Al Ankles Bennett perfectly. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, yeah, so amazing, amazing stories. And, uh, you know, regular listeners and, and regular viewers will know that often I, I like to try and find an image from around about the period that we're uh, discussing. Um, and I flash it up on screen for people watching on our YouTube channel or on our website. I found this image this week, which is a, a great shot taken from the Leeser's end. And this is the <laughs> opening game of the season in 1967. Newcastle are playing Southampton. And there's Wynne Davies mixing it with uh, Southampton's keeper and defenders. Newcastle won 3 0. Um, as ever, you know, this this screen is on uh, this image is on the screen for, for people watching on YouTube. I'll post it on chroniclelive.co.uk too. I don't know if either of you were at the game or remember it or, or have any yeah. have, have any recollections. There's there's the popular side which you, you, you both frequented. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was certainly at the game and, and uh right. I do sort of vaguely remember when uh, having a having a battle. He often had a conflict with um opposing defences and as you can see in the picture there's about five Southampton <laughs> defenders including <laughs> goalkeeper uh, having a go at Wynne Davies um, and he, he he was quite happy to rough them all up so uh, you know that's probably what happened and, and it's a great shot of the popular side along yeah, these terrace there yeah. you know it's just you know packed there would be probably about 40,000 in the ground then 
and uh, now it's it's the it's the east stand um although the Lees terrace buildings at the back are still there um and it's uh, it's a great shot i mean I, that's exactly where i stood in the in the middle and i usually usually was near the front uh, on one occasion there weren't many stanchions on that side you know uh, barriers in other words um so when goals were scored, you used to get these surges of the crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, people would sort of, you know, surge down towards the front. And on one occasion, uh, I, I was involved in a sur- surge. And when it finally settled down, I saw that I'd lost my right shoe. Um, couldn't find it, um, <laughs> which is a bit uh, sad. I knew I would get bo- in tremendous bother when I got home <laughs> with only one shoe. But actually, I found it at the end of the game. Uh, oh. It was about 50 yards away from where I'd been standing. <laughs> uh, and it was filthy dirty, but it was it was wearable. So I was able to go home with two <laughs> shoes rather than one. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And, and Michael, just a, a, a one more question before we go, as, as I wanted to ask you as a, as a writer, you know, doing this podcast, as me and Paul have, walking through the history of the club, um, some huge characters have, have jumped out um, from episode one, you know, to people like Frank Watt, to... Colin Veach, who was a playwright, you know, like yes, yourself. Yeah. Huey yeah. Gallagher. Yeah. Jackie Milburn, Joe Harvey. Obviously, just a few. We're only we're only halfway through the series. Mm. It's almost as if this club is ripe for a, a screenplay. We, <laughs> we had a, we had a, we had another writer on episode nine, Harry Pearson. And he was there to, to discuss Huey Gallagher. Huey's story is, is amazing. Mm. You know, right from childhood to 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 his tragic death. And Paul Paul wrote his official autobiography, his official biography. Have you ever considered adapting something about Newcastle United for the screen? Is that an um, ambition of yours? Well, uh, I kind of thought about it. I mean, the problem, it seems to me, it might be easier to do it now, technically. But the problem has always been that whenever I've seen something on television or a movie that tries to recreate an actual football match, for a fan who really knows football, it's just laughable, really. Mm. Um um, uh, but you're co- quite right. Um, uh, there are some amazing characters, and and you and you ma- uh, mentioned uh, Veach, Colin Veach. Um, uh, in that season, ninety five, ninety six, um, I also interviewed. Well, I interviewed lots of people, but there was a woman that I was told about by my mother actually, who who once met this woman, and uh, and her name was Margaret Petrie, um, and uh, I had an address for her. She she was then in her eighties, um, and this was in you know the nineties, so she'd been born just around the time of the beginning of the First World War, and and she had been a fan of Newcastle United since she was five years old because her father used to go, um, and uh, she used to wait for him uh, on his return, and she used to wait for him in the front room of their house in Jasmine. And when her dad appeared, he'd see her and he'd hold up his fingers to show the score, you know. So, yeah. um, and then when she was eight years old, he, he got a second season ticket in the old stand for her. Um, and in 1996, she, she was, she, she'd been a season ticket holder all of those years and she was still going to the matches. She also went to most away matches on the train wow. and she used to go to all the reserve matches um in gateshead she she met peter beardsley on a train once and they became friends um and but yeah she she saw colin veach who apart from being 
Paul knows very well, I'm sure you talked about him, uh, you know, the dynamo of that wonderful team uh, before the First World War. He, he, he was a very intelligent man. The Veachers were very cultured people. So Colin had a hand. He was a staunch socialist. He, he had a hand in uh, uh, creating the People's Theatre um, and then became a journalist uh, after the war and was himself banned from the ground because the directors at the time hmm. didn't like what he'd said. Um, so she she knew him, and um, she was a wonderful interviewee, actually. And uh, she, she has a place in the chapter about 95, 96, because as I left, she'd, she'd served tea from silver teapots into porcelain cups, and she had this lovely cake that she'd made. But as I left, she, she suddenly gripped my arm and she said, Michael, do you think they're going to do it? Um, you know, uh -huh. And she expressed a lot of the anxiety that we were all feeling at that time. <laughs> oh. uh, bless her. She was such a character. Oh, my gosh. Great. Well, yes, I, I look forward to reading that, that section of, of your book. We've got a, a copy of the, the cover here, which I've, I've flashed up on screen. If anyone's interested, uh, I think anyone listening to this show will appreciate what you've done here. Um, uh, very unique you know, way to approach the subject of Newcastle United um the cover's really really striking and interesting I did want to ask you about that who drew it what, what was the inspiration and describe it yeah. for, for people who yeah. are listening please oh I'd be delighted to do that well from the time I started writing this book I, I already knew what I would want on the cover and it's this painting it's a painting by an artist called Norman Cornish he was a miner in County Durham. He lived in Spennymoor all his life. He was inspired by the landscape and, and the people around him and created this absolutely superb evocation of mining villages in County Durham in their heyday. Um, uh, and uh, it, there was also a personal connection in that he, he was a friend of my father in the pit uh, my dad, Sid, oh. eventually became a, an author mm -hmm. um, and, and Norman became a, a professional artist. Mm -hmm. So I came across this picture a long time ago and it's simply, the title is simply Man with Scarf. Um, and I thought I'd better check with the family, his, his children, who are great friends of mine. I said, do you, think that's a, do you think that's a Newcastle scarf that this man is wearing? And they said, we don't honestly know. Uh, it was never recorded, although they think that Norman knew this man. And he, I mean, it's such a character, characterful phase, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I should just mention in passing that Spennymoor Town play in black and white as well. Uh, so, <laughs> yes. so it's a kind of mystery uh, yeah. who he was and what team he supported. But as far as I'm concerned, he was a Newcastle United supporter, as I yeah. am. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Amazing story. And like, like I said, I'll put the, the link to John Gibson's review of the book and this interview with you in the, the show notes so people can click that and they'll see the image there and Thank uh, yeah you. i think i that's think a lot of listeners should, should get out and, and and buy this book and and you know enjoy the history of this club and remind ourselves how, how great it it was and and can be and will be again i suppose so that's that's why we're, we're doing this so thanks both you know great episode not not the not the most enthralling period of, of newcastle's history but a really important one i think and it obviously sets us up for a huge episode next week that, that, that's uh, simply entitled European Glory. So, listeners, please don't miss it. 
Um, in the meantime, you know, if any anyone has any uh, Newcastle United history stories or observations, facts, stats, memorabilia, you name it, you know, you can email us. The, our email address is the eibwpodcast at reachplc.com or you can tweet me at Ketchell on Twitter and I'll pick that up. Uh, please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast by whichever podcast platform you're listening to and follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media. We're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. If you're enjoying what we're doing with this history series, you know, a, a nice five-star review on iTunes wouldn't go amiss if you've got the time. And, and last one from me, just stay up to date with everything that we're doing at Chronicle Live by subscribing to our, our Newcastle United newsletters. It's myself who, who puts these together uh, every day. They're free. We do a morning news roundup, an evening news roundup, and breaking news as and when it happens, and email that directly to thousands and thousands of Newcastle fans. Inboxes, the link is, again, in, in the show notes. Uh, hit that scroll down to sport Newcastle United updates tick the box and you'll be signed up thanks so much for listening to Chronicled the history of Newcastle United with me Matt Ketchell Paul Joannou and our special guest Michael Chaplin <laughs>